Good morning. My name is Beth Martin Berkey, and I'm a professor of English and Women's Studies here at Goshen College. And today I want to share with you some of the stories that I've learned from my experiences in Costa Rica. Experiences that began when I was an SST or there in the spring of 1981. I would never have guessed that when I stepped off that plane in the, San, uh, the Juan Santa Maria Airport in 1981 that I was entering a community that would be a part of my life for the next 27 years. Seeds planted by Goshen College's International Study Program have grown to be a fruitful and significant part of my life and work. In 1991, after marrying my husband Dave Berkey, himself a Costa Rica SST, we visited in-laws Wilbur and Fanny Berkey, who were serving in Costa Rica at the time in their second stint as SST leaders. And I certainly never imagined that my husband and I would ourselves be SST leaders there in 2001. In my work as a women's studies professor, I've had a privilege of returning to Costa Rica four different times in the last seven years. The first two times I visited women's organizations for some potential women's studies internships. And in 2006, I led a class on Costa Rica women and community development. That two-week course began in San Jose with women's agencies and university programs, but focused primarily on women's organizations and businesses in the small cloud forest region of Costa Rica known as Monteverde, which is Spanish for Green Mountain. The images and the stories I'll focus on today are from my most recent trip when I returned to Monteverde with four students in 2007 as part of a Peace and Justice Journalism grant. In 10 short days, Jonathan Glick recorded nearly 20 hours of videotape, and Valores Hess captured hundreds of photos. Lindsay R. Glick, a Spanish major, and Lindsay A. Glick, an Art, English, and Women's Studies major, and I all conducted 16 in different interviews. We could not have completed nearly as much work as we did without the help of our local coordinator and translator, Jenny Pena, whose knowledge of Costa Rican women and local connections offered us access to their powerful stories. Collectively, these women testify to the importance of collaboration and connections in women's economic and political life in Costa Rica. Now, while I'm standing up here alone today, I don't do so without the help of many people, and I want to particularly thank the students who have accompanied me on this journey, shared their talents and their insights. Current students from the Community Development course include Leah Roth and Jenna Buller. And a special thanks to Jonathan, Valores, Lindsay A, and Lindsay R, as I came to refer to them. Thank you very much for all of your help. I also want to thank the Peace and Justice Journalism Grant Committee for the resources that made it possible to capture the interviews on tape and film. In particular, I want to thank Ron Johnson, Taylor Stansbury, and Sarah Jensen for turning the video footage into these wonderful visual samples that I'll be able to share with you today. My focus today is on the lessons that we can learn by observing Costa Rican women's collective power. Their work offers an especially relevant model for those of us shaped by US or feminist model of individual empowerment. I have many stories I could tell you, but I'd like to focus on Costa Rica's unique political and social qualities and Monteverde's distinctive setting and history. These two elements provide an important framework for the community action that has led to women's empowerment in Costa Rica. Finally, I'll share a few of the women's stories that represent important initiatives in the Monteverde region. 
What I valued most in cross-cultural experiences is the privilege to share in another person's life. So on the one hand, these stories offer us a window into another woman's experience and an opportunity to learn about women's strengths and struggles. On the other hand, the stories such as these offer important lessons. I not only want to learn about Costa Rican women's lives, I want to learn from them and from their amazing skills and resources. Scholar Vina Mazumdar articulates the issue well as she reflects on her work with rural Indian women. She suggests that intercultural work should be a two-way process that, for lack of a better term, Western or first world scholars and students should learn from these communities that they work with in order to better understand, quote, the reality of their lives, their store of skills and knowledge, and their extraordinary capacity to survive. The people being researched, Mazumdar argues, are the real teachers and the scholars are the learners. In this framework, each woman I've interviewed and met has taught me valuable lessons about women's creativity and resourcefulness, their determination and their compassion as they work together towards strengthening their communities. These women demonstrate how women's empowerment emerges from collective experience and not just individual freedom. Many U.S. feminists focus on personal expression, sexual identity, equal rights, and all of those are very important. But at times, the U.S. women's movement is marked by internal division and competition rather than collaboration and compassion. I've definitely experienced women's solidarity and collective power in the U.S. That is the basis of my own feminist commitment. But I've also felt the isolating effects of our culture's emphasis on women's individual achievement, her role in the nuclear family, and her dependence on physical appearance and romance to shape her identity and define her value. Now, these elements are also present in Costa Rica, particularly with the pervasive influence of Western culture through media and commerce. But I've repeatedly observed that Costa Rican culture values community over the individual. As democracies, both Costa Rica and the US have built societies on the belief that a person has an innate capacity for goodness, and individuals deserve equal opportunities and protection of rights. Many Costa Ricans also assume, though, that people with knowledge and power, the government, for example, community leaders, have the responsibility to educate and support all individuals in order to build their capacity for growth and success. In contrast, many US citizens assume that individuals are primarily responsible for their own success. The government simply provides the framework or condition for their freedom. In the US, free enterprise is believed to be the heart of community strength. And although free enterprise is strong in Costa Rica, the country has successfully used the model of collectives for local and national development since the 1950s. The primary strategies there are to pool resources and share profits. The Costa Rican women's movement has followed that model as well. But for some background on Costa Rica. For many people, Costa Rica conjures images of tropical beaches, lush rainforests, and smoldering volcanoes. And all of these are certainly true in a small country, which is just a little bit bigger than the state of West Virginia. Bordered by the Pacific Ocean to the west and the Atlantic to the east, the small country forms the continent's narrowest land bridge, with Nicaragua as its northern neighbor and Panama to its south. Even before tourism became the largest source of foreign income in 2002, surpassing even bananas and coffee combined, Costa Rica was known internationally for its biodiversity 
its absence of a military and subsequently any military conflict since 1948, and its comparatively secure economic structure. Contrary to its current popularity, Costa Rica was once one of Spain's most neglected colonies from the 16th through the 19th centuries. In spite of being named Costa Rica or Rich Coast, the country actually had fewer mineral resources and a smaller indigenous population to serve as laborers for the colonial masters. Some scholars suggest that this early colonial structure, this isolation, shaped Costa Rica's autonomous spirit and fairly homogenous cultural identity. In some ways, this autonomy also contributed to Costa Rica's strong democratic tradition. As early as the 1870s, the government established free compulsory education for both sexes, limited the scope of the army to a national guard, and invested in Costa Rica's infrastructure by building roads and the national railroad system. By the 1940s, the government established the University of Costa Rica, developed a socialized health system, Seguro Social, added maybe many social guarantees and civil liberties to the Constitution, and protected workers with a very progressive labor code. A brief civil war in 1948 preserved the power of the electorate. The new government abolished the military permanently, saying that Costa Rica is proud to have more teachers than policemen, a statement that is still popular today. In the sub subsequent decade, the popularly elected government also gave women the vote, nationalized banks, insurance programs, and public utilities. With these economic and political structures in place, Costa Rica remained a relatively stable country during the turmoil of revolutions throughout the Caribbean and Latin America in the 1960s and 80s to 80s. Neighboring Central American countries, particularly Nicaragua and El Salvador, were torn apart by civil war, revolution, and military dictates, dictators. But Costa Rica became a model of peace in the region. Oscar Arias, in his first term as president, won the 1987 Nobel Prize for Peace for the Central American peace plan that he helped negotiate. Costa Rica's historical commitment to social well-being has given it some remarkable statistics <clears throat> and placed it among the top 50 nations in Human Development Index rating in 2008. Its over 4 million citizens have a literacy rate of 96%, access to potable water stands at 95%, Sanitation services are provided to nearly 90% of the population, although consistent practice of sewage treatment is not nearly that high. And nearly 100% of Costa Rica's population has access to state-run electricity and phone service. It remains to be seen how Costa Rica's last-minute concession to CAFTA last fall and its push toward privatization will impact these nationalized services. Like many Latin American countries, Costa Rica has also faced serious challenges in the last 50 years. It's accrued an immense international debt and experienced serious inflation. Government corruption has led to charges against three of the last four presidents. Costa Rica's social system at times results in an inefficient bureaucracy. Things sometimes happen slowly. But in spite of all of that, efforts to make changes that benefit the common good are still a priority. And in this relatively stable and economic structure, social and economic structure, Costa Rican women have faced less conflict and had more opportunities for education, political participation, and employment than their Central American counterparts. Without the link between military and politics, women have found a more comfortable position in Costa Rican politics than many women around the world. Because of legislated gender quotas for nominees, since 1998, Costa Rica is now fifth in the world for the percentage of women in government. 
In 2007, the World Economic Forum's Gender Gap Index ranked Costa Rica 16th out of 128 countries for women's overall political empowerment, compared to the U.S.'s ranking of 69th. In addition to political and legal resources, the cult country's cultural values of collective well-being and mutual support have informed Costa Rica's women's organizations. As part of a seminar I attended on Costa Rican women's movement in 2001, I have visited many grassroots women's organizations as well as government agencies and academic women's studies programs in San Jose. I still remember one woman's comment about watching her neighbors struggling <clears throat> to find work, to pay the rent, and to clothe her children. She asked herself, how can I be doing well if my neighbor is not? She believed that she must not only work for herself and her family's security, she also had to take care of the people around her in order for her community to thrive. And that was the beginning of her neighborhood women's association. In the past six years, I've heard this woman's experience reiterated in both urban and rural settings in Costa Rica. Recurring words indicate the centrality of va certain values to their work. Capacitar, to enable, to empower someone. Apoyar, to support or to hold up another. Recursos, the importance of providing resources and educación, the centrality of education, both formal and informal, for individuals in the community. <clears throat> These words highlight recurring themes I've observed at all levels. They also offer insight into the values and strategies that could aid, more, aid a more collective and community-centered feminism in our own communities. For this project, I've focused on women's experience in the Monteverde region, where their efforts have been shaped by Costa Rica's broader social context and cultural values. And while their community offers a microcosm of women's organization throughout the country, their experiences have also been shaped by significant unique and unique forces. The first is geographical. Got a little clip here to show you of some of the rainforest uh, valley around. The Monteverde region is perched atop the Continental Divide, where the Tilaran mountain range reaches an elevation of nearly 4,500 feet. On a clear day, Volcan Arinal it has tendrils of smoke that can be seen to the east, and the Gulf of Nicoya's shimmering water can be seen to the west. In the first half of the 20th century, this region hosted few human inhabitants, with only a small number of mining, logging, or subsistence farming families. The first official settlers founded Santa Elena in the 1930s, but little successful development followed. In the 1950s, Costa Rica encouraged rural settlement, and because of the inexpensive land <clears throat> and Costa Rica's lack of military, a small group of Quakers moved from the U.S. to Costa Rica in 1951, at a time when the U.S. draft was picking up because of the Korean War. After establishing a small settlement in the Monteverde region, they began dairy farming, and today most Costa Ricans know Monteverde for the delicious cheese made by Los Cuacaros. The Monteverde Cheese Cooperative inspired many local farmers to turn to dairy farming and provided a strong economic base for the community. By the 1970s, the population of the Monteverde region had grown to approximately 1,600 people, with a few small businesses and several new elementary schools. And although the Costa Rican government had begun protecting large areas of national forests, development in the area was on the rise. And as the community grew, several Quakers decided to purchase land tracts to preserve their water supply and to prevent further development. In 1986, this group also founded the Monteverde Institute as an educational organiza organization and a research facility. 
And at a time when organizations like the World Wildlife Fund called on people to save the rainforest, Costa Rica in general, and Monteverde in particular, was an accessible and receptive site for private donations. Because of these large protected areas and the resources built for research, Monteverde has become an attractive site for ecotourism since the 1980s. Today, Monteverde is best known for its rainforest zipline adventures. Visitors can climb towers, strap on a harness and wheel trolley, and slide across an intricate system of cables <clears throat> strung high above the forest. Another rainforest attraction is a canopy tour where visitors walk a series of catwalk bridges nearly 70 feet high which give them a bird's eye view of the plant and animal life. Ecotourism and educational exchange bring in an estimated 60,000 tourists in just last year alone, although that's just a fraction of the 1.9 million tourists who visited Costa Rica in 2007. With an increase in businesses such as restaurants, hotels, galleries, shops, travel agencies, and taxis, tourism is rapidly overtaking the agricultural economy in the area. As employment opportunities have grown, so is the population. In 2007, the Monteverde region had a population of nearly 7,000. Monteverde region's unique features, the makeup of the community, the research and educational programming that have been there, as well as increased tourism, have had an impact on women's lives in the area. And I'd like to share just a few examples of those today. I'll start with Kassem an artisan's cooperative that has had a successful souvenir business since the 1980s. And the story of Casem is not possible without learning about Patricia Jimenez, a woman who moved to Santa Elena from San Jose in the 1970s. Because of the lonely bo loneliness and boredom she experienced in the small community, she decided to sell secondhand clothing from her kitchen. Her shop quickly became an informal gathering place for local women, and once you meet Patricia, you'll understand why. She has an easy laugh and a contagious smile. When a friend asked to sell some hand-embroidered clothing in her shop, Patricia and others got the idea of making money with handicrafts. In 1981, a small group gathered in her kitchen and began learning how to embroider. Patricia's husband was a research guide in the Cloud Forest Reserve and encountered foreign researchers looking for mementos of their visit. The women decided their handiwork would be excellent souvenirs, especially if it reflected the local plants birds, and animals. With a small grant from the Inter-American Foundation and educational support from a visiting artist, they were able to develop new products. This is a, a picture of the Monteverde Santa Elena region. And this is Patricia. In 1982, with the help of the larger Santa Elena Cooperative, the women began to define an organizational structure and bylaws and adopted the name CASEM, which is a committee for artisans in the Santa Elena and Monteverde region. By 1987, they had their own building in Monteverde, and their original group of eight members had grown to 80 before reaching its current membership of about 125 women and, and some men. An obvious benefit from CASEM's work in the community has been providing women with an independent income. The profit distribution also teaches women about saving. For every product sold, each woman gives 25% to CASEM for overhead and puts 10% into savings before taking home any income. CASEM has also offered women an important educational resource. 
Assembly meetings and educational workshops are actually required for membership in the cooperative, so each woman has an opportunity to learn about accounting and marketing, decision-making, self-esteem, and conflict resolution, as well as different craft skills. CASM workers speak highly of the supportive friendships and the life-changing skills that they've learned while a part of their group. CASM is an important stop for Monteverde visitors, but it faces several challenges today. As tourism has increased, so is the number of souvenir shops in the area, often stocked with mass-produced products from the city. Women also have more options for work, restaurants, hotels, and the organization's future is certainly not clear. As CASM's current director says, they're not sure who will be the next generation of CASM. Young people, she notes, do not want to do the same crafts as their mothers did. They have more educational opportunities and more choices. We also heard stories from women who no longer work with CASM but whose lives were profoundly shaped by CASM's support and education. One of those is Ana Ovares. Ana Ovares joined CASM when she was only 13, and over the next 15 years she learned to paint and embroider, sew shirts, and make candles. In her mid-twenties, when her first daughter was born, Anna felt, Anna felt the pull of her own creativity and wanted to expand beyond the type of products as well as the quantity of products that CASM dictated. Each woman can sell a maximum of six items a month, all of, much, all of which must be made by hand and sold only through CASM's store. After learning ceramics from a Monteverde Institute teacher, Anna, began, Anna began, began creating her own pottery, candles, and paintings and producing much more than CASM would allow. It was time to move on. With language skills she had learned as an exchange student in the U.S., Anna earned money teaching Spanish at the Monteverde Institute for the next 12 years as she developed her art. And today she is an independent artist with her own studio that she and her husband built in the back of their home so that she could do her art and raise her three daughters. Another small business that emerged from CASM is Rosewood, a woodworking business by Licho and Danis. Danis was a CASM member for 19 years where she primarily painted on fabric and wood. Her husband Licho became an associate in 1994 and started working with wood, an art that he had originally learned from his father. While they both appreciated the relationships and the support that CASM provided, like Anna, they too wanted to expand. And in 2004, they were able to purchase their own woodworking machines with a donation from an Australian neighbor. In the past four years, Licho and Danis have encountered common struggles for small business owners, uneven income with high and low tourist seasons and long work hours. But they enjoy working together and have a very unconventional Costa Rican marriage where either one does whatever work is at hand, changing diapers, doing laundry, keeping records. Licho enjoys woodworking and gardening and Danis likes meeting the tourists in the newly built souvenir shop close to their home. A woman's collaborative work is also evident in small businesses that were encouraged by government and international grants. And one example of that is La Campesanita. Campesanita began in 1988 at the initiative of Costa Rica's Ministry of Agriculture, which offered government assistance to develop economic opportunities for rural women. Under the guidance of a ministry resource person, the original group of three women learned recipes for processing local vegetables and fruit for preserves and marmalade. They also received formal training through the National Institute of Technology about business administration skills. 
Over the years, the group has grown slightly, but is still made up of local women from La Cruz, some of whom are daughters of the founding women. In the past two decades, their products have expanded, although their market remains very local, with transportation difficulties limiting their ability to sell in a larger area or in San Jose. As we spoke with them, each woman talked about the pride she feels as being a part of Campesanita. They laugh as they recall changes their families faced when they were no longer home full-time, ready to meet their husbands' or children's immediate needs. They proudly described sons who do the laundry and husbands who cook meals. And one of the most important aspects of their work, though, is the support they've found in each other and the self-confidence that they've gained by creating and sustaining a successful business. A more recent business venture based on local resources is Echo Bamboo, a thriving papermaking business in San Luis Abajo. In 2001, a small group of women got the idea of making paper products with recycled paper and regional plant materials. With grant funds from Japan and assistance from a few national and local foundations, they were able to buy land and build their facility. Four years later, they are officially an independent association. Six members and five employees from their small community make paper and products for gift bags, coffee, journals, and stationery. As you can see from the photos, theirs is a labor-intensive process, beginning with collecting recycled paper before processing the pulp and plant material for color and texture. They make and dry the paper before cutting, gluing, and finishing their products. During the high tourist season, they produce as many as 1,000 to 1,200 sheets of paper a month, while in the low season, they make only about 600 sheets. The women of San Luis Abajo have been even more isolated in the Monteverde region because of the rugged terrain leading from the main road to their small valley, which limits travels and economic opportunities. Echo Bamboo, they say, has been essential for supporting their families while offering them a supportive community of women. These stories are only a fraction of the stories that we've gathered, and many more stories remain to be collected and shared. My hope is to archive copies of our video footage and photos at the Monteverde Institute, where they might inform future projects on women in the Monteverde region. Clearly, women's collaboration, their solidarity and passion have enriched this particular region in powerful and lasting ways. They offer models for the power that women's collective action can take around the world. Thank you very much. <laughs>